Matt, you were just kind of like soaking it up up here, man. I might do the same thing. Uh, it's almost like you take it for granted what you've got, and then um, when it's gone, all of a sudden, it's happened a few few times this year, right, with you guys, <laughs> right? You've lost a few things, and um, when you lose it, you kind of realize the value that it had, so it is... It's so weird seeing y'all now. Uh, but it's kind of like riding a bike after a while. You just get back on and try to figure out how to make that, that happen. But it was good at camp. Uh, we took 64 people to camp. And it was a, a battle from the moment we said we're going to camp. It was just a, a spiritual battle. And that just meant to me that we were doing the right thing. It was... It was uh, a, good, a great week. It was a great week. We had, I think, 30, 36 students and 27 adults, if that tells you anything. Uh, it, it was fun, so uh, I just appreciate Camp Zion. And we pray for them that they can just stay healthy and clean the rest of the summer as well because uh, financially they they have to survive. And uh, some of these camps that are around the country are struggling because they're getting COVID and shutting down their camps, and um, so their staff and facilities are hurting. So just continue to pray for them. So, Troy, we're uh, definitely praying for your family this week with Jeff and for Madison and Brandon getting married Friday night. It's kind of a big deal. So uh, just be praying for peace, peace there for them and their family. And uh, just thankful that, that you all are here. Well, I heard this sermon yesterday, so I thought I would had to play it today. Just kidding. <laughs> Judah, I don't know how you can hear a song one day and play it the next day in front of us, so you're pretty gifted. Uh, it's a good thing. Thank you for doing what you do. No, I, I didn't really hear this sermon yesterday. But uh, I want to pick up where we left off two weeks ago. We're... Just to kind of catch up, we started 50 weeks ago, approximately a year ago, uh, going through the book of Acts. We finished the Gospels, took a little break, and then we started Acts, and we've kind of gone through that whole thing with the Spirit coming and living inside of us as believers, and then Paul going out and reaching out to the Gentiles, having a little bit of conflict with the Jews and not wanting to include the Gentiles, and the Gentiles didn't want to be included with the Jews. And then he began traveling around, starting churches in Ephesus and Iconium and different places like that. And then he came back and did a second missionary trip, and this is where we are in the story. He has literally made his way around and is starting new churches. He was in Thessalonica for a while went on to Corinth after he got ran out of Thessalonica. Timothy came and said, hey, I was just hanging out in Thessalonica with all the new believers. This is what's going on. And Paul couldn't go back to him because of the trouble that had been stirred up before. So he sat down and penned this letter and actually the next letter, Second Thessalonians. And that's where we are as we are in the end of First Thessalonians, he spent the first two or three chapters just kind of validating himself and encouraging them as believers. 
And then he began to break down the subjects that they were dealing with and struggling with. Timothy, Timothy said, they're doing great. They're loving one another. They're treating each other well. Their testimony is traveling all throughout Macedonia at this time. And, but they're struggling with these things. One of them is, we talked about it two weeks ago, was the sexual immorality that was just so controlled that whole region and what they, they lived in. That was normal to a non-believer. And now Paul was reminding them of their holiness. He was reminding them of their holiness, and the holiness was that the Holy Spirit came inside of them and enabled them to overcome those flesh patterns that were established by society that were that was acceptable by society. And now he has literally moved from holiness. Watch this in verse 9 of chapter 4. Verse 9 of chapter 4, it says this. About brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He literally made a jump from holiness to love really, really quick. And again, the only way to live in holiness is understanding. This is, this is huge. You, when we live in a, a society and uh, issues uh, that's dealing with racism and things like that, that, obviously we're dealing with in this country, this is it. Right, right here, this is it. This is what's going to set us apart. He says, about brotherly love, you don't need me to write you because you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. That was the whole message is that we are to love one another. And honestly, the only way that I can love everybody in this room is because there's a Holy Spirit inside of me that does it. That's it. doesn't matter who you are, what you do, what you say. All those things, I am able to love you because of the Spirit in me. Now, I'm in a little different situation than most of you in this room. Because I'm the pastor, because I'm the police chaplain, I have to love everybody. Right? What if it comes across that I don't? I'm in a little different situation. But am I really? Am I really in a different situation? No, you're identified as, we struggle with the term Christian, but a believer, a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, then it's no different for you than it is for me. It really is. I, people expect me to love everybody, and I think God has given us the ability to love everybody. Um, you guys have pretty knowledgeable in the word love. There's there's Hebrew words ahava and dod and all that. And then there's Greek words. It's a different language. That's in the New Testament. Most of you know the the Greek words for love. Do you know there's four? There's more than four. There's plenty of words for love, but there's four main ones. Does anybody know what those are? Agape, of course, you're going to get that one. Uh, phileo, yeah. Eros, nice job, Trish, on the Eros. Is there another one? Mm. 
It's one that's not really used in Scripture. It's called Star J. Star J, and it, it, it really talks about a family's love, like how the family loves each other. But it's not, it's maybe referred to in Scripture, but it's not necessarily used in Scripture. The Eros the, that you mentioned is where we get our word erotic, and it can either be sinful or it can be sensual. As it is used in the Old Testament, in Song of Solomon, it is very sensual. It is a gift from God, no question about it. Uh, but it's not really used in the New Testament. The two words used in the New Testament are phileia, and that is the brotherly love where Philadelphia gets their name, the city of brotherly love. It's the deep affection of a friendship, and it can even refer to a marriage as affectionate. Uh, This is the love that's in this room right here as brothers and sisters in Christ. Phileo love. Because we have the same father, right? We all have the same father, the heavenly father. And so you and I are seen as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he teaches us to love one another. But then the word agape, which really what he's talking about here is this word agape. It's the love that God showed to us. And what kind of love is that? It was a sacrificial love. A sacrificial love. It's not based on feeling. Did you hear that? It's not based on feeling. It's based on the will, the desire, the choice. Agape love treats others as God would treat them. And that's why uh, I would say, I don't know if you can experience agape love unless you have a Holy Spirit inside of you, unless you have a new heart. Remember, we're born from the seed of Adam and we're born with a wicked and evil heart, but then eventually as we believe in Jesus Christ, he takes our old heart out, puts a new heart in it, and we begin to learn how to live out of that new heart. And it's out of that new heart that we understand what sacrificial love is. It's very much a Christian, a believer's distinctive, just like a fish knows how to swim or a bird knows how to fly we as believers with a new heart and as a new creation should know how to love it should be very natural and so then you ask well how how do you grow in this love how do you grow in this agape love increase more and more i honestly process that question and i just think it's by living i just think it's by living and walking this walk Walking by faith, uh, our, our circumstances force us to practice Christian love today. Like, literally, that's, we're, we're forced to do it. it it's kind of like the circulatory system in our body. It's what, it's what causes our muscles to move. It's, it's so natural to us, but if we don't use them, then they become impaired. You know what I'm saying? It's like if you don't, use this Christian distinctive of love, then I think it becomes ineffective for you. 
but it's something that we practice as in we do it on a regular basis. And then these difficulties that we come across, as I was talking about the the spiritual warfare of doing camp, we're going to come across difficulties. Michelle and I were talking in the car yesterday about how do you... My, we were talking about uh, hard times and difficult times, and uh, it was in reference to somebody else. And my wife, sitting next to me in the car, says, sometimes you just have to toughen up. And I looked at her like, my wife said that? <laughs> she said that, that we have to toughen? I'm like, just how do you tough, toughen up? Like, if you're in the middle of a crisis, how do you toughen up? That's, uh, that's difficult. I think, what I process with her is, we're going to suffer. There's no question about it, we're going to suffer. There's, there's stuff that comes that we can't even help, that we don't even see coming. We're going to suffer. The question is, are you prepared in advance for the suffering? I don't think you're going to fix it during the suffering because that's when all the emotions and everything else, the feelings come into play and you're just getting pounded. You know what I'm talking about. You're getting pounded and you're like, when is this going to stop? I can't eat. I just, and it's hard to fix it. But if you do it before the suffering comes, it will greatly impact the suffering that happens. So I think the whole practice of loving and everything else in advance is a huge, huge uh, part of our life that we will help us get through the difficult times. I don't think God brings difficult times on me for me to grow. I think I live in a fallen world where difficult times happen, and because of that, I grow through it, and the Lord walks with me through it. Uh, Verse 10, it says, in fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. Like The testimony of the love of the church at Thessalonica is traveling fast. Who are these people? What are they doing? They're loving people out of difficult circumstances. It says, but we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more. Oh, watch this. Hmm. To seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands, as we commanded you, so that you may behave properly, properly meaning honestly or decently, in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. Now, you take that passage of Scripture right there and you can process it one of two ways. The first way uh, I'll process it because Timothy told Paul about the sexual immorality was happening and he just dealt with that in one sense. But then... It says, Timothy tells Paul, these people are grieving because people have died since Jesus has died. And Jesus said he was going to come back and they think that the people that have already died are going to miss out now. And so they're grieving for those that have already died. This is one of the questions that's come up from Timothy to Paul. And so in the next few verses, he begins to answer that question. So when he goes back to verse 11, it says to seek 
to, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you. Unfortunately, some of the new believers, this is one interpretation of that passage of Scripture, some of the, the new believers in the church misunderstood the doctrine of Christ's return, and they just gave up their jobs. Like, literally, they thought Jesus was coming back, and we don't have to work because Jesus is coming back. You know, this is all for naught. So they just quit their jobs. This meant they were supported by other Christians. They literally quit and thought, well, I'll just do what the Church of Acts does and depend upon the church to take care of me. Uh, Some of them didn't even have sufficient funds to take care of their own families. And this is why he was saying, and to work with your own hands. meant that they couldn't pay their bills. They, They literally lost their testimony with the non-believers. Like, the ones that didn't follow Jesus, the Gentiles that never came to believe, these Christians quit working and they became dependent upon credit. Credit. And then all the non-believers said, your testimony is worthless if this is the way that you're going to live. Jesus is coming back, so I'm going to run up all my credit cards. I don't have to pay him because he's coming back. (laughs) The church, uh, he says, the church is to live this way, is that you remain quiet, is that you do your work, that you mind your own business. When we say mind your own business, we think, Hey, don't worry about what's going on in my world. You, he, Paul's literally saying, you have a business, take care of it. Make profit. Make a living for your family. Mind your own business is what it means. And then, I read, I read you this, uh, that series of commands he literally commanded them seek to lead a quiet life mind your own business work with your hands as we commanded you that series of command uh expressed a mutual christian love and uh he was saying you have to be representative of the christian world now the other alternative here's one from r f hawk like that really matters to you but he presented this alternative with an eschatological uh, understanding of these verses he argues that the commands lead to a quiet wife and to mind your own business were encouragements to political quietism like all the politics that are going on this is his interpretation is there's no need for you to say anything. By avoiding political activism and working at respectable occupations, the church would gain the approval of their non-Christian neighbors. Some of the terms Paul used in these verses were indeed used by various Greco-Roman philosophers to encourage withdrawal from public life. Such encouragements would make sense in light of the apostles' past experience in Thessalonica. In other words, he's saying, you know all that stuff that Paul went through? 
It's like you can really avoid this if you just shut your mouth and remain quiet. Do your job, do your business, be loving in a community, and you will earn the respect of the non-believers, and they will listen to your testimony. I mean, literally, Paul had been charged for social and political unrest in the city of Thessalonica, and maybe they could avoid that. That's just another interpretation. But hear me on this. When Paul's saying remain quiet, it should be very clear from Paul's own history that living quietly didn't mean that he didn't talk about the gospel. He talked about the good news of Jesus Christ all the time. He was talking about it nonstop. So when he's saying remain and live a quiet life, he's not talking about not talking about Jesus and all the things that he did. The church was not to live quietly as a function and as a witness of being a believer of Jesus Christ. Then verse 13, it says this. It's Now we're talking about this Timothy brought up. They're grieved. They're grieved by their family and friends that are dying. It says, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. The verb there, when he says sleep in the Greek, literally means, it's kameo, which means to sleep. This is a, this is a euphemism for death. You know what a euphemism is? It's an uh, agreeable term or expression that is substituted for one that might be offensive or unpleasant. So literally, he's talking about dying and he's trying to make it easy. You know, it's always hard to say when someone died, you try to think that, uh, oh, they've left us, or you try to think of some way to soften this. And this is exactly what Paul has done here. He's said, for those who are asleep... So when he's using this word, he's using it as a, a figurative sense, referring to the Christians that who have already died since Jesus had died and been resurrected. So now Paul is focusing on Timothy's report that is that they're grieving the return of Christ. I'm going to take this passage of Scripture right here, which deals with the end times, and I'm going to today teach it in the context of what I believe Paul wrote it in and that is from a pastoral stance I'll come back next week there's this this section Matt you'll love this but this is the section where they they actually get the rapture the word rapture from although it never says rapture in here but talking about the end times, yeah, I know we all there's several of us that have different beliefs about the end times, and let me tell you that uh my belief about the end times and Matt's belief about the end times and Jeannie's belief about the end times we're all wrong, so <laughs> we're all just like when we're up in the sky together, we're going to be looking at you and go at each other going, uh, well, we thought it was this way i we don't know. We have a pretty good idea. Matt thinks he's right. He thinks he's going to be telling me that I'm, I told you so on the way up. But 
Yeah, he says I can apologize when we get there, so I'd be all right with that, dude. I would be okay with that. But, uh, but let me teach you from uh, this passage of Scripture from the context of really what he's writing it from. Because their concern is all self-focused. You remember the disciples? It was all self-focused. It's what about me? When am I going to eat? What are we going to do? Da, 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 da. How we protect ourselves? And it's the same way with us. This is a self-focus. We focus on ourselves, this whole grieving process. The ancient Greek writer Theocritus lived about 300 years before Paul, but he wrote a saying which is very helpful for the question here. He said simply this. He said, hopes are for the living, without hope are the dead. Let me say that again. Hopes are for the living, without hope are the dead. This is a great quote because he uses the word hope there. And he talks about it in the context of death. And Theocritus is very clear that living people are the only ones who can have hope. Living people are the only ones that can have hope. If you're dead, you can't have hope. But Paul is sitting here and he says, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. That seems to echo Theocritus, what he's teaching and what Paul's teaching are two totally different things. And Paul claimed this earlier in his opening. Now watch. He says, so that you will not grieve like the rest. He doesn't say not to grieve. He just doesn't want you to grieve like the rest. Hang on. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way, through Jesus, this is one of the only times Paul never says Jesus Christ or Jesus the Son of God. He just simply says Jesus. He says in the same way, through Jesus, God will bring him with him those who have fallen asleep. Paul's literally presenting to his readers with with something that he assumes and that they assume is true. It's going to be a foundation for his argument that Paul makes that why some translations that we read right here, it says, if we believe. Some say, since we believe. Or sometimes they just make it a statement. We believe that such and such is the case. But literally, right here, Paul has said this. For if we believe, like all in this room right here, if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again the same way, God will bring him with those that have fallen asleep. He's literally, you, you guys are believe the same things that I do. Now watch this. This is the, the rapture part of it. But just hang with me. Verse 15. It says, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That is the specific text that theologians associate the rapture. 
I can break that down for you, but not today. So let me stay with the intent that I will briefly revisit the passage next week when we talk about the rapture. The the Thessalonians are grieving over fellow Christians. That's the real issue here. They're grieving over those who have died. Let's answer that question. And and this is an easy trouble for us to understand because all of us in this room probably have had somebody that's close to us that has died. Troy right now has got a brother-in-law that is ready to go be with Jesus. He's ready to go to sleep. He's ready to die. He's ready to leave this earth and be at his forever home. We all have had that. My mom, you guys have had it. We've all experienced that. So we can understand what grieving is. But at the same time we grieve, we also have this hope that Paul's talking about. And so because of that hope, we've changed the word funeral to what? A celebration of life. What are we as believers supposed to do? Grieve but have hope and we celebrate life. We can grieve and have hope at the same time. For instance, if you look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, Paul's referring to his, his helper, Epaphroditus, and Paul says that if Epaphroditus had died from an, his illness, Paul would have had sorrow upon sorrow. So Paul wouldn't have felt guilty, and he expected to grieve if indeed Epaphroditus would die. Romans 12, 15, Paul has an important command. It's simple but important. He says, weep with those who weep. Paul recognizes that some of the Christians in Rome are going to be suffering a number of trials, and that will lead to weeping. We will grieve. We will grieve. Would these... Family members miss out on the return of Jesus? That was the question. Paul literally takes his focus back to the teaching of Gospels. Now, think about this for a second. Jesus was crucified 30 AD, roughly. This was written sometime around 50, 51 AD, 21 years after. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John had not been written yet. What you have in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, had not been written yet. But Paul is quoting Jesus. Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples. Paul had this conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and then he went away for a time, and what happened to Paul? All this got downloaded to Paul's head. Everything that Jesus taught was like as if Paul was literally there. Jesus or Paul knew the teachings of Jesus because the Holy Spirit gave it to him. I wish I would have had that same experience, that it just be downloaded. I get it downloaded, but it's taken day after day after day after day. Paul got it. And so literally he's taking the words of Jesus that were downloaded to him and he's repeating it to the church at Thessalonica. 
Matthew eventually writes about in times in Matthew 24 what Jesus was talking about. He ad- adds to it and it gives us this picture. And Paul's literally saying, well, as real as you believe Jesus rose from the dead, that's how real you can believe your deceased loved ones will rise from the dead. You do believe that Jesus rose from the dead, right? Well, then your deceased ones will also rise from the dead because Jesus did it. And he will do it for us. This is what Paul is expressing to them. Paul's reminding them to get to their focus off yourself and back on Jesus. They're worried about their family and he's like, I'm going to take you straight to what Jesus said. This is what Jesus says. And if that's the case, I believe it. Let's focus on Jesus. That's it. Get the focus. You're going to experience grief because of death, but grief with hope. You've got this hope, unlike the others, unlike the others. And then the last verse I look at right here, verse 18, it says, watch this. Therefore, he's like, all that now, therefore, encourage. Some of your translations say comfort one another with these words. Paul ends his passage with the Greek word paraclete paraclete one another that means to come alongside one another and encourage jesus said that he was going to die be buried raise again and send what a paraclete that he was going to send someone to come alongside them to encourage them this is Literally the same word that Paul's using right here. He's saying, paraclete one another. That is to come alongside one another. It's the same word that John used in his gospel. Some older translations actually just take the noun form of the verb and they just render it the paraclete. They'll say the paraclete. But the word and the verb refer to someone who's called to come along to your side. Now, think about this. I say to you, the primary purpose of Paul in this passage is not to predict the future, but to pastor those that are grieving. That's his whole deal. Yes, he refers to things in the future, And he's taking these from the teachings that has been downloaded to him. In fact, it's not just in this passage at the end times, but he talks about it next week when we get into chapter 5. He also even talks about it in 2 Thessalonians. Paul talks about the end times because this is of concern to the church at Thessalonica. And all these discussions, he's trying to comfort his readers. As a pastor, that's what I do, is I try to comfort you through your suffering, comfort you through your journey, comfort you through your distraught. So I know these words of hope can be words of hope for you as well. And so perhaps you've already been thinking, 
in the midst of our study in this passage about someone who has already died. My prayer is the Holy Spirit will work together through your tears, but you're not grieving like the rest of the men, that you have this great hope. You're a person that grieves because we miss them, but we have a hope. May God comfort you with this hope of the gospel. Father, uh, I know Paul was a deliverer of the gospel, of the good news. He did that, obviously, in starting these churches, but he also had the heart of the pastor, that he cared for the church, that he loved them, that he wanted to encourage them. He wanted to spread hope, faith, and love. And he encouraged them to walk in that faith and hope and to love one another. That's my prayer for those that are here, those that are at home watching on YouTube, that we can just know how to love one another. And I trust you with this word in Jesus' name. Amen.